0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. With this message this morning, we are transitioning out of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, and I think uh, that should give you some hope that we are moving forward in a reasonable pace unlike my usual style. Um, So in high school, I traveled to Kenya on a short-term mission trip right after my junior year. Um, And it was through this trip that I sensed God's calling on my life to become a long-term missionary to Africa. And so from that somewhere onward, I dreamt of returning to Africa But it would take 17 more years before that dream was finally realized. uh, This is a picture of our family in 2004, during our first days in our new home in Kapsuar, Kenya. Uh, Judah is not in that picture because he wasn't born yet. Uh, Betty was seven months pregnant when we first arrived in Kenya, and so she's in her belly right there, okay? Um, Working as a doctor at that mission hospital in Africa was like a dream come true. It was the fulfillment of everything that I had been preparing for for the last 17 years. And then after almost five years on the mission field, um, I began to become increasingly tired to the point where I could barely drag myself out of bed. And at first, I thought that it must be some kind of a parasitic infection, some tropical disease that I had caught, and so I had all kinds of tests done, but everything came back negative. And then I began to struggle with my breathing, and I began to have what almost began to feel like asthma attacks, but it wasn't asthma. so finally in 2009, I traveled by myself to the U.S. to see some specialists in America. And they ran a whole battery of tests on me. Um, And what they finally came to the conclusion was that I was reacting to the high altitude of our home in Kenya, which was way up in the mountains. And their basic message to me was, you got to get out of there, and you got to get out of there fast because it's affecting your heart and your lungs, possibly in some irreversible ways. And so after five years, my missionary career came to a sudden and unexpected and truthfully unwelcomed end. This is a picture of our family with some of our closest Kenyan friends the final week before we left Africa. And during our first few weeks in the U.S., I sensed God calling me um, not to go to somewhere else in the mission field that was in lower altitude like we initially were planning to do, but to actually return back to pastoral work in a local church somewhere here in the Chicago area. And I don't think it was coincidence that right around that same time, Pastor Reggie asked me to join the staff at ICC. Truthfully, in those first weeks back in the States, I was so tired, so weak, that I spent around 12 to 14 hours a day in bed, barely able to um, find the energy to leave the house. But within a few months, um, I was embracing work here at ICC 100%. And I he just totally dove in to serving this church. This is a picture of the first retreat of ICC when I was uh, on staff with the church. Um, back then, crazy enough, I was the speaker every year at a retreat. I don't know, I don't know what I was thinking, but for some reason I did that. Okay? Um, But here was the thing was, despite the fact that I deeply loved ICC and I loved being a pastor again, there was this sadness that I could not shake. It was like a cloud that followed me that whole first year back in America. No matter how much I tried to shake it off, I couldn't. After about six months being back in the States, my supporters began to email me and call me and began asking, "Um, what's going on with you? Are you going back to the mission field or not? And I knew at that point that my missionary career was over, but I could not bring myself to say it. And so I left those messages unanswered in my inbox for months. When we finally reached the one-year mark of being back in America, the ICC leadership uh, actually confronted me and said, we've been getting a lot of questions about you, about what your long-term status is, whether this stint at ICC is just temporary or it's permanent. And we're trying to answer it as best as we can, but you got to say something, Steve. You got to let them know. And so finally, I realized I have to just publicly declare what our intentions are to not go back to the mission field, but to stay in Chicagoland and continue this work of pastoring in this church. And as I began to craft this letter that we would send out to our supporters, acknowledging the end of my missionary career, uh, a whole flood of emotions began to pour out of me. And what I had realized is I had not given myself a chance to actually grieve the death of my missionary calling. The dream that I had had since I was a teenager to be a missionary in Africa. And as I began to write this letter and as I began to grieve, um, I realized I never allowed myself to express some of the anger that I felt toward God. Some of the feelings of betrayal that I felt toward Him. I felt that God could have healed me, but he didn't. And I didn't understand why. I used the busyness of my pastoral work to basically cover the confusion and the pain that I felt because everything was so unexpectedly and suddenly taken away from me. Why, God, why? Why would you give me this dream and have me spend 17 years preparing for that vision just in five short years to take it away from me? You know, I think whether it's sadness or shame or anger or fear, I think most of us in truth struggle with expressing our emotions in a healthy way, particularly the negative ones, right? Maybe for some of us in this room, we bottle up our emotions so that they can't come out until, in truth, they explode (laughs) in anger, or we just slink into a dark depression. Maybe you try to distract yourself with entertainment or work. In fact, I think much of our addictions that we struggle with have to do with this dynamic of trying to deny our emotions that we're feeling inside. Maybe you just completely shut down and deny your emotions completely, refusing to even acknowledge that they exist. Dan Allender and Trumper Longman say this, to be aware of what we feel can open us to questions we would rather ignore. For many of us, that is precisely why it is easier not to feel. To feel hurt hurts. To feel shame shames. To feel any loss only intensifies sorrow. In one sense, that's true, but then why do we try to avoid good feelings? One woman told me that she always feels a slight dread whenever she begins to feel hope. Perhaps a better explanation for why it's so difficult to feel our feelings is that all emotion, positive or negative, opens the door to the nature of reality. All of us prefer to avoid pain, but even more, we want to escape reality. Now, what Ollander and Longman are saying is this, that at the deepest level, we're afraid of dealing with our emotions because we don't want to deal with the painful realities that are underneath those emotions. Realities like embarrassing failures. Realities like a dream that will never be realized. Realities like the pain of loss and abandonment of someone that we deeply love and care about. What I want to say to you is this, as difficult as it may be, we need to deal with our emotions because they are the most honest windows into our heart. I want you to think about that statement really carefully, okay? Our emotions are the most honest windows into our heart. What I mean is this. And you've made me, heard me say this before in different teaching contexts here at ICC because I say it a lot, but whatever you may claim to be your stated beliefs and values in life, I don't know. I don't know whether they're true or not. But what I can say is this. If I really want to know what is important in your life, all I have to do is follow you for a day and observe your emotions. What makes you sad? What are you afraid of? What gets you angry? What really makes you happy? Because those emotions will tell me the whole truth about really what drives your heart. And the Bible teaches us that the way to deal with, with our negative emotions is through what it calls lament, lament. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. The simplest definition of lament that I could give you is this. It is a prayer through which we express our pain, sorrow, fear, anger, and or grief to God. In other words, all of that storm of emotion that we're feeling inside, that negative emotion, it is to bring it to God in prayer. That is, in essence, what a lament is. Eugene Peterson says this. And by the way, uh, Peterson died last week at the age of 85 due to complications uh, related to heart failure. And uh, he, along with Dallas Willard, have probably been the two most influential voices in shaping what my Christianity looks like this day. And so uh, I owe such a great debt to Eugene Peterson. I've um, been talking with a friend about how all of our heroes are passing away lately, like Willard or Peterson and some others, and how what we really need are some young, fresh voices who are really going to, like they did, sort of shape the future of Christianity in our generation. And so that's really uh, one of the prayers I need think we need to be lifting up is who are those voices going to be in this coming generation. But Peterson writes this. We have a style of print and television journalism that reports disaster endlessly and scrupulously. Crime and war, famine and flood, political malfeasance and societal scandal. In the wake of whatever has gone wrong or whatever wrong has been done, commentators gossip, Reporters interview, editors pontificate, Pharisees moralize, then psychological analyses are conducted, political reforms initiated, and academic studies funded, but there is not one line of lament. What Peterson is saying is is this. There are so many ways that we try to manage the brokenness and pain that we experience in our world. But it seems like the last thing that we actually do with that pain is bring it to God so that he can help us deal with it and understand it. But that was not true of David. David wrote more laments in the Bible than anybody else. And that's because in David, we find somebody who was deeply in touch with his emotions, particularly his negative ones. And so today we're going to look at the end of David's wilderness years, years that would finally come to an end because of the death of Saul, who's been hunting him for over a decade to kill him. For over a decade, Saul has been a thorn in David's side. He has made life a living hell for David. And so you would think that at the news of Saul's death, David would be celebrating, but he doesn't. Instead, David is filled with an authentic, deep sense of sorrow and grief. And he ends up singing this beautiful lament for the very person that was trying to kill him all of these years. And we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today. When you study the life of Saul, one thing that becomes clear is this. Here was a man who did not know how to deal with his negative emotions in any kind of healthy way. In fact, what you could say is when you read the whole of Saul's life was Saul was a man that was completely dominated by his fears and insecurities. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 21 to 22 says this, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. There's something endearing about this story, isn't there? As everyone looking and going, Where is the guy? <laughs> you know? Is anyone going to show up so we can crown him? And God says, He's hiding in the baggage. Go hunt him down there, and you're going to find him there. But as endearing as that story is, there's something more ominous happening here. Because that event will foreshadow a more disturbing pattern that will play out through the rest of Saul's life, which is that so often his fear and his insecurity got the better of him. When Samuel confronts Saul for not destroying everything that God commanded him to when he defeated the Amalekites, but spared the things that they wanted to keep, this is what Saul says as an excuse. First Samuel 15:24, Saul said to Samuel, "I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice." In other words, rather than being the courageous leader that God called him to be, he was afraid of what they would think of him if he did something unpopular. And so he caved in to their demands. And rather than being a leader, he actually became a follower. It's interesting, in that same conversation, Samuel makes this comment about Saul. In verse 17 of chapter 15, and Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, what Samuel is saying to Saul is this. In your own eyes, you are like nothing. You know? You, you're st- In our modern language, we would say, You've got self-esteem issues, Saul, you know? You've got low self-esteem. You don't think much of yourself, but then what Samuel says to him is, but aren't you the king? Aren't you God's anointed one? You should believe in that identity more than what you see when you look in the mirror, Saul, because that is ultimately not who you are. We saw this fear that controlled Saul on full display in the valley of Elah when he could not rise to the challenge of Goliath. And instead, he sends a little boy to do what he could not do. In 1 Samuel 17, 37, And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. It's pathetic, isn't it? He sends a little teenage boy to go face a giant that he could not face. 1 Samuel 18, verse 11 to 12 says, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And then interestingly, it says this, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul is the one that tries to kill David with these multiple attempts on his life, but we're told that Saul is the one that actually had the fear in his heart. Because he saw that God was with David. Saul is petty. Saul is jealous. Saul is unmerciful. Saul is vindictive and unstable. He is consumed by fits of rage and anger and paranoia. And all of this is a direct result of the fear that consumed Saul all of his life. And here's the truth is all of us have fears. All of us have fears. Saul's problem, though, was that he had no faith in God to help him overcome his fears. And so they completely dominated his life and ultimately controlled his destiny. And so now on the eve of this great battle between the Philistines and the Israelites that we looked at last week, Saul is once again consumed by his fears. In first Samuel 28 verse 4 to 7, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. And so once again, Saul's fear will cause him to sin greatly, looking for just any word of hope, not from God because God would no longer speak to him, but now from a witch, a medium. And so it goes on in verses 8 to 11. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums of the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. Then the story continues in verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now, let's be honest. This story raises so many questions, doesn't it? And I'd like to get into all the Bible's teaching on the occult and evil spirits and all of this. But the main point, I think, here is not to delve into the occult, but to show how far Saul has fallen by the end of his life. He turns to the very mediums that in his earlier life he had outlawed by following the Lord's command, and now he is secretly seeking them out for any sign of help. In his desperate state, he has rejected God in every possible way imaginable. And as a result, he is now a man that is completely driven and dominated by his fears. 1 Samuel 28, verse 20 says this Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day. And all night. The next day, the battle is a disaster for the Israelites who are cut down by the Philistines. And they are forced to retreat, and in their retreat, they seek higher ground by climbing up Mount Gilboa where they will make their final stand against the Philistines. First Samuel 31, verse 30 to 6 records what happens on this mountain. he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Then Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. The next day, the Philistines find Saul and his three sons dead and they desecrate these bodies. I won't go into details as to what they do. But they take The bodies, these corpses, and they hoist them onto a city wall as a gruesome trophy to be on display of their victory. Until the brave inhabitants from a nearby city go at night and take down these four bodies where they bury them under a tamarisk tree. And there, Saul's tragic life comes to a final end. While the Israelites and the Philistines were fighting in this massive battle, if you remember from last week's message, David was hunting down the Amalekites who had burned down his village and kidnapped all their daughters, sons, and wives. Three days after they are rescued, and now they have returned home to Ziklag, an Amalekite with ripped clothes and caked with mud shows up in Ziklag, and he says that he's come from the Israelite camps, from the battlefield. And he reports that the armies of Israel were decimated and that Saul and Jonathan are now dead. And David is, you get the sense that he's a little bit skeptical, and he says, how do you know this? How can you know this? In first, 2 Samuel 1, verse 6 to 10, this is the conversation that David has with his Amalekite. And the young man who had told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Now here's the problem. Is this Amalekites report clearly contradicts the details of Saul's death that we were told in the previous chapter? Most commentators believe that this Amalekite is actually lying. There are a lot of, and I, I don't have the time to get into all the details of his account, but there's some problems with his testimony. One of the most glaring ones is, he says, I just by chance to been strolling on this mountain when I discovered this guy laying there on his sword almost dead. And so the struggle is, how do you just chance upon a mountain that you're walking on randomly when there's a pitch battle going on? here with these Philistines and these Israelites. So a number of details in his story don't make sense. In all likelihood, what scholars believe is that this Amalekite found Saul already dead, leaning on his sword, along with his three sons. And he became an opportunist in that moment, and he took the crown, and he took the armlet from Saul's corpse, and he brought it to David and told this lie taking credit for Saul's death because he realized, hey, David hates Saul. So if I can claim the death of Saul, maybe I can get in with David and get some favor with him. So you can imagine how surprised this Amalekite was at David's reaction of the news of the death of Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, it says this, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David then has this Amalekite executed. For killing Saul. Because despite all of Saul's shortcomings, what David says is Saul was still God's anointed. And by the testimony of your own mouth shall you die because you said you killed God's anointed. And then this chapter ends with this beautiful song of lament that David wrote in honor of Saul and Jonathan in verses 19 to 27. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shields of the mighty were defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of, a wo- of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. I want to kind of use the rest of the sermon to talk a little bit about this idea of Lament particularly as we see it so often it's displayed by David in the Bible. And what I want you to catch in what happens here in this chapter is this. David's first reaction to the news of Saul's death is just pure, raw grief and anguish that results in him tearing his clothes and just weeping and crying. But after that, after that crying, comes the poetry of the song that David writes. And I think one thing that we can learn from this is this, is that a lament is a conversation that begins with an honest acknowledgement of the pain that we feel, but then ends with a heart of understanding because we have brought it to God and let him help us deal with that pain. You know, the song that we just read shows a rather refined perspective, a really high-minded David. But the truth is, when you read throughout the whole psalms, they're not always this beautiful. They are not always a finished product of discovering and understanding God's heart for the people that God loves. Let me give you a few examples of the rawness of lament that often shows a much earlier stage of this conversation. Psalm 77, verse 1 through 3, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Psalm 6. 6-7, to I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And I think what we learn from these biblical laments in the Bible is this, is that we need to begin with a place of honesty when it comes to our emotions. And I think truthfully, particularly as Christians, we have a really hard time with that, don't we? Because when we feel these negative emotions, they are often accompanied by a sense of guilt, that we shouldn't be feeling these things if we're a Christian. A good Christian should never be angry at God. A good Christian should never be sad because if you have faith, then you should always know that God is with you, and if God is with you, you should always be happy, right? But we just know that that's not true. Truthfully, sometimes we are sad. Sometimes we are angry. Sometimes our anger is even directed at God in our confusion and in our pain. And I want to say that God is not afraid of our honesty, of expressing these emotions honestly to Him. In fact, that is where healing begins. Dan Allender and Trumper Longman say this. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. To understand our deepest passions and convictions, we must learn to listen to the cry of the soul. The presence of disruptive emotions that feel irrational or out of control is not necessarily a sign of disease, sin, or trauma. Instead, it may be the signal that the heart is struggling with God. Therefore, we must view the ups and downs of our emotional life not as a problem to be resolved, but as a cry to be heard. Emotions open the door to ask hard questions. Does life make sense? Is there any real purpose to my pain? Why must every relationship end? Is God good? If we are to understand ourselves honestly, and more importantly, know God, we must listen to our emotions and that's the place that I want to start with asking with you this morning is how honest are you with your emotions has there ever been a moment when you could really just sort of pound your fist and say I am angry with you God I don't understand your ways I don't get you sometimes where are you in this Or to be honest with your fears. God, I am terrified. I don't have the faith to meet this challenge. I don't believe enough in you to meet this need in this moment of my life. Lament must begin with honesty. Honesty about what we are really feeling inside. But then also lament is in that honesty to cry to God for help in the midst of that pain. To lament is to bring our pain and our struggles to God. Allender says this, to to lament, that is to cry out to God with our doubts, our incriminations of him and others. To bring a complaint against him is the context for surrender. And then he says something that I love. Surrender, the turning of our heart over to him, asking for mercy, and receiving his terms for restoration is impossible without battle. To put it simply, it is inconceivable to surrender to God unless there is a prior declared war against him. You get that? You can't surrender to someone that you haven't declared war against. And so there needs to be an honesty in our lament to say, I declare war against you, God. Christians often assume our conflict with God was finished when we converted. At that point, we were enemies of God. Indeed, we were, and it was a great battle. But the battle is not over with conversion. Though it is the decisive victory that assures the outcome of the war, it is hardly the last and final fight. A lament is truly asking, seeking, and knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not to shut down the quest for truth. It is a passion to ask rather than to rant and rave with already reached conclusions. A lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion and moves toward God. In other words, I think what Ollander is saying is sometimes we're too polite for our own good, you know? Too polite to God. And sometimes there needs to be an honesty that says, God, I declare war against you because sometimes you feel like an enemy to me by the things that are happening in my life because it is only when we are honest about our hostile feelings to God that we can get to that place of true and absolute surrender to him to say, your ways are higher than my ways. And even in my pain, yet will I follow. Because what we discover in lament is this. Very often, God's answer to us is not to explain all the questions that we have about the problem of our pain. Often what we find is that the end point of lament is that even in our unknowing, even in our struggle to understand God's ways, It is a comfort in simply knowing that our God is with us and that he is good. Psalm 73, 28 is a classic example of that. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That was the conclusion after all of the complaining that the psalmist does is at the end of it all, as I bring my tears to you and cry out my heart to you, what I have found in you is a God that is always by my side, a God that comforts me and is near me. I want to say this, is that you cannot go through this life without having to grieve. Now, truthfully, some of you are too young in this room to have really lost someone that really matters in your life. Some of you are young enough that you probably have never attended a funeral up to this point, never seen a dead body. I don't know. But whether it's the death of a loved one, whether it's the death of a dream, whether it's struggles with infertility, of broken friendships, struggles with leaving a church that you once loved but you feel has betrayed you and now you're on a search for a new church family, whether it's the loss of innocence because of horrible things that you've had to experience, the truth is, in this broken world, all of us are going to have to grieve many things and mourn the loss of many deaths. And what I want to challenge you with is this, what the Bible teaches us, is don't just try to manage that pain. Don't just try to medicate that pain. Don't try to deny or stuff or bury that pain. Bring that pain to God and lament. And pour your heart out to him. And in that lament, you will find a God who is more than willing to meet you in that place of pain and help you in your time of need. I'll end with this, and then we'll go into communion. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. This is the promise that Jesus gives to us, is I have personally experienced everything that you have experienced in your life. And then because of that, I can empathize with what you're going through. And I know that pain because I've gone through it. And in knowing that, I will walk with you through that pain in your life. Let's pray. As we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to a moment of personal reflection in your own life. And can I simply ask you this? How do you deal with the negative emotions That you feel inside, whether it's shame or anger or fear or sadness. What are your coping mechanisms to deal with the pain in your life? Do you find yourself drawn to certain addictions that help you to drown out that pain or distract yourself from it so that you don't have to face reality? I think one of the great things that faith in God enables us to do is to face reality courageously because it takes courage to face this world, doesn't it? There's so many things that can cause pain in our lives, so many losses that we will experience. That's why, as Allender and Longman said earlier at the beginning of the message, that's why sometimes we even brace ourselves against positive emotions, right? Because in that joy, in that hope, is the hidden fear that this cannot last long. And so it almost breaks our heart to hope too much because of the fear that that hope will one day be taken away from us. And so the answer that the Bible gives us is not to chase after our addictions or to um, stuff it down and deny what's going on inside us. What the Bible challenges us to do is to take all of that confusion, all of that pain, and in the honesty of that emotion, bring it to God because God is not afraid of that honesty. That's, if the Psalms teach us anything, it teaches us that. 70%, believe it or not, 70% of the Psalms are laments. They are not uplifting positive songs of praise and worship. They are actually complaints against God and cries to him in the midst of pain. of them. What the Psalms teach us is that we can come to God with that honesty and say, God, I am hurting. I am hurting so deeply inside right now. And truthfully, I don't really want to even come to you in this moment of my pain because sometimes I feel like you're the source of my pain. I feel like you are the one that has betrayed me. Why so many unanswered prayers? Why so many unanswered cries? If you really love me, why do you allow this to happen in my life? But somewhere in that cry of pain, a true lament is also a searching, a reaching out to God, saying, God, help me in this pain. And I believe it is precisely in that cry for help that God will meet us in that pain and show us that he is near us and is there to help us i